After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Metta Hour with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network and features interviews with the top leaders, teachers, and thinkers of the mindfulness movement and beyond. For more information, visit BeHereNowNetwork.com backslash Sharon. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and today I'm joined by Lily Cushman. Many of you know Lily is my director of operations for many years now, but she's also a teacher, musician, and author. For nearly a decade, Lily was the owner and director of the Brooklyn Yoga School, a lineage-based school run entirely by donation, which was voted Best of New York by New York Magazine. Her work is a synthesis of the body practices of classical yoga, the heart practices of bhakti yoga, and the mind practices of insight meditation. Lily offers workshops and retreats around the country, and her first book, A Little Book of Mantras, An Introduction to Sacred Sounds, was released in March 2019 from Sterling Publishing. Welcome to the Meta Hour, Lily, which you conceived of and created. <laughs> I know, it's really strange to be um, in this chair. <laughs> it's very funny. <laughs> yeah, that's good. A lot of people who listen to this podcast will probably recognize your voice right away because you've introduced the podcast for years now, and it actually really was your brainchild. Usually, though, since you're producing, you're sitting outside the recording booth when I'm interviewing someone. Yeah. So it's fun to have you here in the recording booth with me. Well, I have this funny thing happen to me where, you know, so often I'm, if I'm like at a retreat, managing a retreat, you're teaching or something, I'll, I'll be talking to someone and they'll get this like quizzical look on their face and after a few minutes, they're like, I know that voice. Yeah, really? <laughs> it's pretty funny. Once I was in a, a Mexican restaurant, we were all um, a whole bunch of friends at this Dalai Lama teaching in L.A. And we ran to lunch. I was sitting in this Mexican restaurant, and I was just talking to somebody. And this woman at the next table looked over and said, are you Sharon Salzberg? <laughs> it's like the voice. It's like, the yeah. voice, yeah. It's your ultimate calling card, I guess. Really? <laughs> so, of course, I know you very well as we've worked together so closely for years now, but many listeners out there don't know you, so I thought we could start today's conversation with your journey of how you came into this world. Yeah, I mean, I think like a lot of people, I came to the, the practices and these Eastern practices looking for a different way to take care of myself. Um, it was my first semester in college and I was super overwhelmed with, you know, being a human mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and uh, 
a mentor of mine at that time recommended yoga, which um, at that moment in time meant purchasing a VHS tape. <laughs> I remember this. <laughs> yeah. Because I'm older. <laughs> I'm older too now. And uh, so, and it was just something that just stuck right away. Um, and I started practicing. Within about a month, I made the commitment to practice every day. And I did that almost 10 years before I mm. even took a class. So, um, and it was just this. Really? You practiced from the, the tape? From the tape, yeah. And then I, I slowly just got more books and kind of, I mean, it was a real remembering for me. And for that period of time, it was just the physical postures. And it wasn't like fancy or anything. It was something I did in my pajamas. I like roll out of bed mm. every day. And it was this kind of private thing that I did, which at first I like told everybody about because <laughs> it was like such a big thing for me. I wasn't like a fitness person. I've mm -hmm. always kind of hated exercise a lot. <laughs> so at first I like told everyone and then as the years went on, it just became this private thing I did. And and it really like took me through a lot. It gave me this huge anchor and, and then eventually... Um, I met my teacher, Dharma Mitra, and that kind of kick-started this whole next chapter of my life where I started teaching. And he was somebody who taught um, kind of the broader spectrum of yoga. So it was meditation and chanting and the philosophy and the postures. So that was where I kind of got cooking on high heat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm really intrigued with the fact that you ran the Brooklyn Yoga School on a donation basis. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe we can go back to that for a moment. Yeah. Um, well, this was um, this kind of wild project that I conceived of mostly because yoga had become really popular. Um, I, when I started practicing, it was just, you know, not a thing the way mm -hmm. it is now. You couldn't go to Target and get a yoga mat. Um, and living here in New York City, like part of that big boom meant a certain kind of commercialism that happened. And that the reality was, is that it was really expensive to practice here. You know, it was like $20, $30 a class. Mm -hmm. And and I just always felt really strongly that that was very limiting for a lot of people. And that, um, you know, to really benefit from the practices meant having a regular practice and mm -hmm. that most people weren't like me. They couldn't just do it at home every day. They needed the structure of a formal class. So I just kind of had this idea at that time I was managing my teacher's studio and um, I thought like, well, what if I taught by donation and what if I had my own space to do that? And it, it just seemed crazy, honestly. <laughs> but um, at that point I had been studying with you a little bit so I'd seen the model, I'd seen the Donna model, mm -hmm. which is, you know, how the Insight Meditation Society still offers teachings, which was so inspiring to me. And there were a couple studios in the U.S., yoga studios, that did mm -hmm. donation. But I really just kind of, like, my response to that idea was like, all right, well, I'll do the work if the resources come. I sort of just, like, threw it back to the universe. Mm -hmm. And... um the very next day, I had something really interesting happen, which is that this woman who uh, also taught at, at my teacher's studio, without knowing anything, any of these thoughts, she just kind of randomly said to me, you know, you should 
you should open a studio. Can I mm. give you some money to open a studio? And she gave me a thousand dollars and I felt like, okay, that's a pretty clear yeah, indicator. So, um, so I just began fundraising and it just really came together pretty magically. There were a lot of things. And I, you know, when you tell the story of opening IMS and mm -hmm. being young and naive, that was totally me too. Like I had no idea what I was doing and happened to find the resources and the people who did know what they were doing to kind of put this thing in place. And I had no idea if it would last more than a few months. Like I didn't even <laughs> tell the, the owner of the building. He was really excited it was going to be a yoga studio, but he had no idea it was going to be donation. And uh, within a couple of months, there was a line out the door for classes and it just kind of all coalesced in this really um, incredible way. So, and, you know, I'd say having the studio almost 10 years, like that was really a crash course in um, living these teachings because I essentially lived a donation-based mm -hmm. life that whole time. And it's not, it is not easy to mm -hmm. do something like that. Um, I think for anyone, but especially here in New York yeah. City. Yeah. <laughs> um, so a lot of that was a personal practice for me of really like deeply living um, the teachings of like staying connected to this bigger idea. I had this bigger aspiration as it were. Um, and to have a lot of like to live a certain quality of faith and confidence mm -hmm. that support would come when it was needed. And there were so many days like I couldn't, I couldn't genuinely find that, but you just kind of write it out and sometimes there's more money and sometimes there's less money. We always seem to just make what we needed. Mm -hmm. um, like if there, if there would be like a really good month, like the next month there would be a flood and all that extra money yeah. would just like go right no, to it. No. It was so hilarious. So, um, but I, um, I think one thing that was really interesting for me that I had no idea would happen as part of that is that the students um, trusted mm -hmm. the studio mm -hmm. in a really different way. Um, and there was this openness and kind of uh, clarity that would happen there for people because they just, they just knew there wasn't anything else going on. That it was like we were really just there to sort of impart these teachings. And so I still meet people all the time uh, who had these really big experiences there, um, finding yoga or meditation for the first time and it really altering the course of their life that mm -hmm. I think a lot of that was kind of tilled by the donation model, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, which was really beautiful and totally unexpected. So that was pretty cool. I was going to ask you, maybe going back, uh, so this would be before you started the studio, mm -hmm. um, like there you are practicing alone in your apartment or wherever <laughs> with your tape. Um, yeah. Um, when did you start having a sense of community? Was it through mm. kirtan, through singing, or was it when you met your teacher and you were surrounded by kind of like-minded students? Because that's what you really set out to create yeah. with your own school. Yeah. Um, it was really when I started studying with, with Dharma Mitra, I had actually, I had come across Krishnadas because someone had invited me to one of his mm -hmm. chanting events. Um, 
but it it really wasn't until I was studying with Dharma and uh, yeah, it was really. I think those first, you know, that first period of time, I was really isolated, and so there was a lot of um, like deep inner connection for me, um, as opposed to like finding it in other like-minded individuals. So it was a, it was a big thing for me to come into community and and find um, just that kind of support. And I hadn't studied. You know, I kind of started in classical yoga, but when I started looking into into the Buddhist teachings, understanding how big a role community plays, really, mm-hmm. I don't think I realized it until I read that for the first time. I was like, oh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but somehow I'd like managed without it for so long. So, um, but yeah, it it really um, it really felt essential to support community um, and to like offer that kind of container for people to come together and and practice and uh, that it kind of becomes its own organism. So for someone like me who's like supporting it, um, running the space, there's a certain point it like takes on a life of its mm-hmm, own mm-hmm. Um, and the flavor is very much dependent on who's in the room. And so that was really lovely and um, – yeah, I think you know we. Only, I only closed the studio earlier this spring, and there's a lot of people who are still reeling from the, the mm-hmm. loss of that. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, maybe it'll come up in another way, in another yeah. form. Yeah. yeah. So when did maybe you can explain what kirtan is and talk about when you first started doing kirtan? Yeah. So in um, public, <laughs> in public, exactly. Um, kirtan is call and response chanting. So it's the chanting of of mantras and um it's like one one of the ways to formally practice with mantras and the most popular for sure in the west um it's like i always kind of describe it as like the music that's playing in a yoga class um and i first came across it kind of by accident because a friend gave me a cd (laughs) still cds of krishna das um who's kind of the He's like the the rock star of chanting um, and now a close friend of mine. But at that time, a friend gave me this this album. And as it turns out, it was the only album he's ever done that's not call and response. It's it's just him singing the mantras and the prayers. And so, so she later invited me to this concert of his. And I just thought it was a concert because I had no idea. I just heard this one CD. Mm-hmm. I liked it. He had a really beautiful voice. And it was on this church on the Upper West Side where KD still does an annual event. And it was totally packed. And so I'm sitting in a pew and kind of like, okay, I'm not sure what's going on. And he starts the event with an ohm and the whole room started chanting. And I just, I was so shocked. I just started crying without Mm. any thought because I'd never felt anything like that. And the whole evening then just really <laughs> kind of blew me away. Not at all what I was expecting. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's interesting. It took me some time. It was some years before I really like felt it. I mean, I'd been singing since I was quite young and studying voice. Um, and it kind of like took some time to like work into my system. Um, and Krishnadas would come to my teacher's studio and teach as part of his 
teacher trainings. So he was somebody kind of from the beginning who really um, had a big effect on me. And he essentially taught me about kirtan practice. And um, it's an interesting practice because it has such a different flavor than mm -hmm. other formal mm -hmm. practices. Like you get in a room with a bunch of strangers <laughs> and you sing together. Right. And so um, I kind of love that there's like an awkwardness to it. Because, you know, if you go to like a meditation class, there's not a lot of pressure. You're just like silently meditating. You don't have to like do a weird dance or anything. <laughs> not that you do a weird dance in kirtan, but, you know, a lot of people feel self-conscious singing. Yeah, for sure. But it's the same kind of mechanism where singing, the singing of the mantra and the listening to the mantra is a, uh, different way to train your attention, a different way to pay attention. And um, you can do kirtan even if you don't have a very beautiful voice, right? That's the best part. And uh, one of my first trips to India was to this really amazing uh, temple in Rishikesh in northern India where they have this room where they do 24 hours of this one mantra that seven days a week that they've done for, you know, at least 60 years or so. And... Uh, the people who do the mantra there, they're not like gorgeous singers. It's actually people who, who go when they know they're really in the last moments of their life. So they know they have maybe a few months to live. And they go there and sing this mantra as their kind of final offering. It's really beautiful. And it sounds terrible. Right. <laughs> it's like the, the actuality of being in the room is like, you know, this little tiny human who's halfway, you know, out of his body, who's um, just like over in the corner, you know, hi, Krishna, hi, Krishna, 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 hi, hi. And it's not musical, but it's so potent. And and there's so much behind the mantra. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, that's really different from the like performance standards that come in the West um, that like the the basis for your success in, in a kirtan practice isn't sounding a certain way. It's really like how much you can gather yourself into the singing of the mantra and also the listening of mm -hmm. it. Since it's call or response, it kind of toggles back and forth. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, and it's interesting because it does, you know, over the years I've done uh, very concentrated periods of either you know, yoga asana practice or meditation or chanting. And they're different paths that ultimately reach the same destination. But I find, depending on what's happening in my life, I'll kind of use them differently. And mm -hmm. I've had some, you know, big health challenges in my life. And those were moments I, mm -hmm. all of my tricks didn't work, you know, to like get me to a place of of more balance or health. And the thing that really worked was mantra practice in those mm -hmm. moments. I couldn't do triangle pose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I was like in too much discomfort physically to like sit and do um, like a breath-based meditation, but I could do mantras. Mm -hmm. So that was always really interesting to me. It's kind of like different uh, techniques uh, that I think kind of work differently depending on the circumstances of your life and what you have to balance and you know what you're working with so so I'm a big fan and I often joke that like 
you feel as good as though you've done a really long yoga class, but you haven't had to work so hard. Right. Well, that's good. <laughs> you can just sit there. <laughs> so the yeah. best thing of all. So yeah. this discussion is actually going to serve as an introduction to an evening that you had with our mutual friend, Catherine, yeah. who interviewed you upon the release of your book, your yeah. first book. So let's just talk about your book a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, a little bit of mantras is it's kind of a fun Trojan horse because it's a, it's an introductory book, but I really wanted to kind of create a handbook um, because I know so many people who, who love chanting, but don't know a lot of its roots, its history or like the science behind it. Um, so it's a small book, but there's a lot packed in there. It's a great size. It's such a fun size. It's a wonderful size book. And it's very cute. I love the cover. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, so about half of the book is, um, is really practices. Um, It's how you, different ways that you can practice with mantras, whether it's like the chanting or there's a few other techniques you can do with it. And, um, the history, the context. Um, and then the other half of the book is 13 mantras that are broken down, which is fun because each different mantras kind of each have different, um, they have a different vibe about them and they kind of invoke different qualities and energies. So there's... And that's so explained there, right? So if you're feeling you need yeah. to be energized or calm down or mm-hmm. whatever, you have a choice. Yeah, you can kind of go right to it. So it's a book you can like read through or you can just like pick it up as a resource guide. And uh, and there's a whole um, audio companion to it as well. So oh, great. you can learn how to say the mantras and yeah. all that good stuff. So. And how did the book come come to be? Um, the publisher actually reached out to me and, and asked me if I would write it, which is weird because that's not <laughs> what normally happens yeah, yeah. with books. But, um, yeah, that was just what happened in this case. That's fantastic. Yeah. Well, if you uh, keep listening because you'll get to hear this interview and you'll yeah. get to hear Lily singing. She has a beautiful voice. She doesn't have one of those voices that we... <laughs> We were just giving permission to, like, you can sing even if you've got a terrible voice, but she has quite a beautiful oh, voice. Thank you. <laughs> and thanks for having me on. I'm, oh, it's I'm, very fun. It's fun to be in this this chair today. <laughs> really, really did create this podcast. I said, what? <laughs> really? That's what I'm doing? So thank you for coming to the podcast. And if you would like to learn more about Lily's teaching and music, you can visit her website, at www.lilycushman, that's L-I-L-Y-C-U-S-H-M-A-N.com. Her new book, A Little Book of Mantras, is now available in hardcover and ebook formats and all the places that books are sold. Thank you for listening. Hello, everyone. Welcome. My name is Tayana, and on behalf of Paulette Cole and all of us at ABC Home and Deepak Homebase, We're so pleased to welcome you to this very special evening to celebrate the launch of the debut book of Lily Cushman. It's a little bit of mantras. Let's give her a round of applause. I was just telling Lily that about nine years ago, I was living in Sunset Park, having just graduated from grad school, didn't have much money, was riding my bike past a a beautiful yoga studio that had um, big glass windows, and, and it was by donation. 
And I was able to keep up a consistent yoga practice in community by going to a by donation yoga studio that of course is Brooklyn Yoga School, was Brooklyn Yoga School, yeah. <laughs> and that, that generosity, it spills into everything that Lily does and I'm so excited for you all to be able to spend time with her new book because it's such a generous offering. There's so much in there, science and, and just inspiration and personal stories and, and teaching of mantras, whether you're a beginner or, or experienced with mantra practice. So a little bit more about Lily. For over a decade, she's offered yoga, meditation, and chanting events all over New York. She currently serves as the director of operations to world-renowned meditation teacher, Sharon Salzberg. Shout out to Sharon. Please join me in welcoming Lily Cushman and her band. Okay. I don't know where you guys all came from, but... Hi! So nice to see you. What a night. What a week, what a year. We're here together, it's good. So we're gonna sing a little to start, and uh, we'll hang out and talk, and of course Sharon's not here tonight. She sends all her love, and... Uh, my dear friend Catherine is stepping in for her. So we have, we have some fun stuff in store. So let's ohm, we have to ohm, right? Get us going. Close your eyes and relax your body.
Thank you so much, Lily, and fantastic musicians. I'd like to introduce now Catherine Burns. Catherine is the Moth's longtime artistic director. She was born and raised in Alabama, but now lives in Brooklyn with her husband and her nine-year-old son. Please join me in welcoming Catherine Burns. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, hi. Hi. I am so honored to be stepping in for Sharon. I expected I was going to be the audience tonight. I had my ticket. <laughs> um, <laughs> this could happen to any of you when you buy a ticket for my events. Yeah, and I'm so happy you're here. Catherine and I are close friends, and I, like everyone on Earth, am a really big fan of the moth storytelling, and she's, she's like the, the heart and soul of the moth. <laughs> And uh, it seemed appropriate, you know, when Sharon couldn't be here for someone who's like a deep lover of words and also a practitioner, though you're not a mantra practitioner, you're a meditator. Oh, after reading your book last night, I might become one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, but yeah, so yeah, I'm so honored to step in. Sharon, also a dear friend, and um, but I, you know, we met like what, like a couple years ago, yeah. and just instantly I was like, please come into my life. <laughs> and um, I say this about you all the time, but you don't know, so I thought I would tell you in front of 150 people that getting a hug from you is like having a Reiki treatment because you have such amazing energy. <laughs> It's so nice. It's like, oh my God, all my chakras are totally reset. Um, so, but yes, I read your exquisite book last night, all in one sitting. Amazing. Very excited to read it again, where I can, in case where I can savor it. But it's so amazing, and I thought maybe we could start by having you just read the first couple of pages, since they can yeah, like, yeah. get us right into the heart of this thing. So I only just saw the actual book about three hours ago, so I'm like as enamored as anyone with this. And the process of writing a book is, you know, it's like something you sit on a laptop by yourself. So to like see it come into form as something you can hold is, uh, is quite remarkable. So how are you guys doing? You good? Okay. Mantras are sacred sounds or sacred syllables. When repeated with dedication and focus, mantras serve as a means to steady the mind and open the heart. The word mantra originates from the Sanskrit language and was adopted into the English language in the late 18th century. The word can be broken into two roots, man and tra. Man, the root for the word manas, which means mind. Tra, T-R-A, is defined as crossing over. Combined, the literal translation of the word mantra is crossing over the mind. But what exactly does it mean to cross over the mind? What lies on the other side? And why would anyone want to go there? This whole concept is quite foreign to Western culture, except when we desperately want to get rid of a migraine. However, in the traditions of the East, seekers have been exploring practices to learn how to work with the mind for thousands of years in search of greater happiness and well-being. These traditions believe that crossing over the mind allows us to gain access to the fullness of our being. Beyond our anxiety, distraction, and fearfulness lies a vast potential for greater connection, creativity, and curiosity. This is what awaits us in the world of mantras, an immense toolkit that enables us to inhabit our lives. Gorgeous. So one of the things that I've loved about your book is you talk about how we sort of think, at least I think of mantras as being something that comes from India or Nepal, but really they have roots in so many cultures in different ways. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that was what was really fun about this book is that, you know, I'm I'm really linked in with the Hindu Hindu tradition where, but when I opened it up and started just looking at, you know, other cultures it's, it's everywhere. It's really quite amazing. And the way it's used, uh, you know, to sort of ultimately reach the same place, but coming from these different worlds. Totally. So interesting. And one of the things I love that you also talk about is like this concept, and I might mess this up a little, y'all, I'm just very new to mantras. So <laughs> I'm like, what is it in Passover? Like the child who has no clue, who reads and asks questions. I'm that child tonight. Um, so... Um, but this idea that maybe that there are these sacred sounds that exist in the world that you know, certainly you know, yogis and sages, but also that we can tap into if we can learn how to hear them. Yeah, and one of my uh, one of the my favorite things that Krishnadas, who's back there, who's going to sing a little later tonight, um, 
often says is you don't see that many musicians who are enlightened and that they go on stage though every night and they repeat the same words over and over as they're singing, you know, their, you know, thank you next or whatever it is they're singing. Yes. <laughs> and they're not gaining the same kind of traction as mm. these people that we see who are reciting a mantra. So it starts to, you know, beg the question like, well, what's, what's the difference? And for you, who's so like tied into word and uh, language and the way that we make meaning of language and the stories we tell about ourselves and the stories other people tell about us, that's a kind of an amazing layer. Like, oh, there's these other words that do something else? Like, what is that? Yeah, that do something completely different and they tap us into a whole other space yeah. if we're willing to trust them, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, now let, but you did not grow up in India. Oh, no. Oh, <laughs> you no. You in another state place that starts with an I, yeah. Idaho. Idaho. <laughs> so how do you go from Idaho <laughs> to... Yeah, um, to India? Yeah, to India, yeah. yeah. Talk about um, that a little bit. Well, I came east to go to school in Boston, and, and I think the East Coast was kind of always on the map for me because my mom was grew up in Manhattan. Um, I have to tell you, though, like in Boise, Idaho... If you live in New York City, you could be homeless and you're still a superstar in Boise, Idaho. Because uh, it's just like no one goes to New York City uh, in Idaho. Yes. It's like it's hilarious. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I grew up kind of in the wild. I grew up riding horses and also listening to opera. And it was, it was kind of not your average Idaho lifestyle. But my uh, mother resettled her work and life was resettling refugees. Mm. And I think that kind of put the world on you know, in my lap in a very direct way that I was always really curious in other cultures. And so then, you know, later I go to school in Boston and became a musician. And when I moved here in New York, um, I don't know, yoga just kind of found me. Mm. And uh, it was something I started doing to take care of myself. And um, I started first with just like the triangle pose and all that mm. stuff. But uh, a friend of mine gave me a CD some years later. This was this was a while ago. And it was a Krishna CD, but I don't know if you know this, Katie. It was literally the only non-call-and-response album that he had. Wow. So I loved it and listened to it and then in, was invited to one of his events. And I just thought it was a concert. <laughs> I didn't know about this whole back-and-forth thing at all. And... Uh, so there in the church on the Upper West Side, you know, maybe 15 years ago, he started to ohm and the whole church ohmed. And it was just, I'll never forget that moment. It just like woke something in me. And so slowly through the years, I just, I just felt really drawn to that world. And uh, it took me a long time to kind of integrate it and understand like how you can be at home somewhere else that's so foreign. But when I get off the plane in India, just the air smells like home to me. It's something, something there. I love that. All right. So let's get nerdy a little bit. Let's yeah. talk about the science of this. Let's be nerds. I, I love totally, science. Totally. Okay. 100%. So one of the studies <laughs> in your book, which I'm now thinking of as the Santa Claus study. Yeah, the Santa study. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. Okay, cool. So, uh, and this goes back to what, what we were saying of like how some words seem to contain within them some other secret sauce. So as I was uh, doing the research for the book, uh, I came across this study that is hilarious to me because basically it compared a, a mantra using, uh, in this case, it was a Tibetan mantra and the words Santa Claus. 
<laughs> Those were the two comparisons. And in this study, what they did is they had people look at either a neutral photo or a photo that was difficult in some way. And then people said Santa Claus. Well, they looked at like terrible photo and neutral photo and they studied what happened in their brain. And then mantra with each one. And what was really interesting is that kind of what, hap what happened when they did Santa, and still I don't know why they did the word Santa, because right. like, <laughs> frankly, it's, it's a loaded word. I was going to say a little loaded. It's a right little now. loaded. <laughs> it wasn't just like yeah. pineapple. Yeah. Um, but the parts of the brain lit up that you would expect to um, in the neutral photo and then the difficult photo. But now when they did mantra, the brain lit up the same way as in the neutral photo as in the difficult photo. So basically they didn't have a negative response to that negative photo when they did the mantra. They were being protected. Sort of something. something was happening. Yes. And uh, protection is an interesting word because that is one of the ways that mantras are kind of considered traditionally is that they're, they're a protection and you see that around the world. We just had a moth story where someone is given a word in Africa to say that when he says that, he'll be protected. Like it's, there is something to this, these like sacred words. It's yeah. so beautiful. Yeah. Um, and then, then we'll, like, let's just go a little bit deeper. Then we'll back out of oh, the yeah. science. Yeah, yeah. The DNA, right? Mm -hmm. That doing mantras can change our DNA. Yeah. You so um, mantras... Uh, are something that has been studied a little less than other meditation techniques or yoga. Um, and this one study I found showed something really fascinating, which is that when combined with yoga and pranayama, breathing exercises, they create what's called a relaxation response in the body. And um, originally, you know, that has a lot of um, positive impacts in terms of like blood pressure and... Um, Alzheimer's, a lot of different things. Yeah. But in this particular study, what they found is that it starts to change the genome so that not only are you getting the benefits, but that's getting passed on through your DNA to your children. So that's why um, I always laugh when I found this out. I called Janaki, who was just singing with me, who's Krishnadas's daughter, and I was like, see? You just got it through the DNA. He's been doing all that mantra and you get the benefit. But that's like, that's some next level science totally. right there. And it's so positive because I feel like there's so much negativity in the news mm -hmm. about generational trauma. And so to think that that can be turned around, if there yeah. can be a positive side of that, that we can pass on like these beautiful things through our DNA exactly. like at yeah. this level, which is really, it's really thrilling. So exciting. Cool. Um, so why don't we get a little bit practical okay, for yeah. a second? And so, so to someone like me who knows a little bit about meditation and does some yoga, but didn't know that much about mantras until yesterday. Um, how, <laughs> <laughs> but like you, you guys will all, after you read this book, you're going to know so much. Um, but like to me, from the outside, it could just sound like music. So do you, and you talk yeah. in the book about how there's four parts to doing it. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah. So I think it's, uh, it's kind of a bit of a Trojan horse, this practice, because, um, you know, you can listen to it and it makes you feel a certain way. But to really like drop down into the level of mantra as a practice is 
is a whole different way to interact with it. And that was my main goal with the book was to really give people the tools so that they can start doing that for themselves. And, you know, practices we're more familiar with are like, you know, breath meditation or Qigong or yoga. But here, like mantra has that same pathway and it's ultimately getting to the same place, but the sort of root for the practices in the mantra itself. And so like all of these practices there, it's, uh, it's this skill building that we do. It's like learning how to pay attention differently. Mm. And I think when a lot of people first sit for practice, it's, um, it's overwhelming at first because, you know, we're just in motion so much of the time we're on our phones, we're doing whatever. And you start to sit and actually pay attention to something. And then we realize like, Oh, I'm really scattered. I'm really fragmented. Did you call it, call it chasing cats in your mind? Yeah, chasing cats. Yes. Chasing <laughs> cats. And it's just like, you know, it's just nuts up here when you really start to look. And so it takes, you know, often I hear people say like, oh yeah, that meditation is great, but I can't do it. And it's really not like that. You know, anybody can do this. It's just a matter of kind of understanding some core principles of like, first of all, if you do a practice, it's not going to magically stop your mind from thinking. I mean, I still wish that occasionally, but (laughs) it really is just changing your relationship to your mind. And so it's learning how to kind of gather your attention into the mantra and then having some real understanding of like, it's very natural to get distracted in that process. It's like we wander away and then we learn how to come back. And that sort of coming back to the mantra after we've been lost and beginning again is like, that's the essence of practice. And it's also the essence of life, right? You know, we start on a path. We're really inspired to like grow some basil on our fire escape and we don't know anything about it. So we learn a little and we try it and it doesn't work. And do we give up? No, we grow another round of basil. Like yeah. that's, that's how we actually move through life. So it's this amazing, um, you know, microcosm for our life. And it has all these skills built in it. The resilience of beginning again, learning how to let go, concentration, all these like super duper powers that anybody can unlock if you just start to do it five minutes a day is enough. I love that. And one of the things I'd never heard anyone say before with this is you talk about the gap, which is the measurement, but how long it takes you between when you drift off and when you notice you drifted off and trying to close the gap a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Yeah. Cause that gap can be huge. And that, yeah. and that's, what's kind of fascinating about the process of when you look at your mind and come to terms with like, we don't have control over the thoughts we think especially when it's like these horrendously, you know, like chastising thoughts of like, oh, you shouldn't have worn that today. You know, I believe I said that. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like we're not like scheduling those to come in. I don't know. Maybe you are, but I'm definitely not. (laughs) They just show up when they show up. And it's the same way that we get distracted when we get distracted and that there's that element, like we don't have control and it, there is this gap of when, we've kind of lost the concentration. We've lost the focus. 
and when we realize we've lost it. You know, we might be 10 minutes into the story right. of whatever, like... What you forgot to pick up at the grocery what store. What you forgot to pick blah, up. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. If only you'd made the soup with the different bouillon base, like, maybe that salt was wrong. You know, it's like, yep. you're deep in. You're like having children with someone you've met once. <laughs> and then you're like, oh, mantra. And yeah. you come back. So... But it can be a long time and that it's not like when that happens, <laughs> when that happens, it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It doesn't mean you suck at the practice. That is what the practice That's is. Practice. That's the practice. Yeah. And you can kind of build a little world for yourself. And so, you know, when someone says like, oh, I had a great practice this morning, it's not because you like manufactured some state of bliss it's that you were able to relate to wherever you were that day, mm. however distracted or not distracted you were, and just keep coming back, totally. beginning again. I love that. And part of the idea of this is so beautiful is you can do it anywhere. Oh, anywhere. Which I totally love. Um, I sometimes just to evoke Sharon again. She will talk about how people tell, tell her, oh, you know, I meditated the pool when I swam. And she's like, yeah, but... Can you go for a swim in the middle of a board meeting? You know, I don't think so. So there's something really cool about having something that is always with you. And this feels like an yeah, another thing. Totally. Yeah. And, and I think when, when people like undertake a practice, it, it often is accompanied by a lot of enthusiasm for maybe like a wardrobe change or a new <laughs> house or whatever. It's like we get on the full outfit of like, now I am a meditator. And this is how I behave. <laughs> But like, it can be really simple with mantra. Like you don't need a new outfit. You can just start doing it and you can take it with you. I mean, like this past week in this, you know, health emergency that Sharon was going through, we were doing mantra every day mm -hmm. in the hospital. I mean, you take it where you go and that's your entry point to touch into something else within you. And that's what's really lovely is like when you're going through that process of, those steps of gathering ourselves in the mantra, they ultimately drop you into a deeper part of yourself. And I'll quote Sharon since we were just with her and she's very much here in spirit. Um, she defines this place that we can access. It's not like we're discovering something new. It's just that we have access to the deepest place we've already known in ourselves. Mm. so it's like we get the key to go into that room that otherwise we don't know how to get to like maybe a beautiful sunset or someone holds us the right way or says the right thing and we feel that deep connection to ourselves but here the mantra is what gets you there and you can trojan horse that into any board meeting i've done it so many times <laughs> uh, i love one of the things you write in your book is um you say you can do this practice without a ton of equipment a special outfit or anyone thinking you're super weird. Yeah. Love. <laughs> yeah. You do, You can like, I mean, I, I look pretty normal, you know, and like, no, I'm totally weird on the inside. So you can get real weird too. Cheers okay. to that. <laughs> so talk about the different ways to practice. Like there's you oh, in, yeah. in the book, you define three different ways. Yeah. I think most people I think associate with like more of the singing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Singing is probably the most popular um, but there are two other ways that um, sort of in the 
lineages where this comes from. And one of those is uh, speaking. That can either be the silent repetition of the mantra or speaking it aloud. And that is most often accompanied by one of these, a mala. This is a Ramdas mala tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the second way. And then the third is, is written. And uh, this I really love too. And I, for the book, I found this beautiful calligraphist so to, yeah. to draw the, the mantras. And um, so that is a practice in itself where you just literally write the mantra out. And each one has kind of a different flavor. Um, I mean, some people love what we just did was called kirtan, the call and response. Some people really love that. You don't have to be, I mean, I always say Celine Dion, but you don't have to be <laughs> Celine Dion to do that. It's not about like, oh, I'm going to be a performer. Performer, yeah. Yes. It is not that. Um, That's a relief to people like me who cannot sing at all. Yeah, yeah, totally. That's not what it's about. And for me as a musician, it actually took me many years to kind of unlearn mm-hmm. those things because they were drilled into me from a very young age that um, even though it looks the same on the outside, you're you're doing a practice. You're not just like, how great do I sound right now? <laughs> I look very good in this moment. Yeah. Yes. But um, yeah, so you can have a, one of these little malas with you in your pocket. And every time you, you know, you're, you need to kind of gain that access or you need to drop in, like you just stick your hand in your pocket and there you go. Done. I love it. So do you have a favorite mantra? Is that an annoying question, like choosing three children? <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Um, I would say it's it changes for me. I've gone mm-hmm. through different periods I um, where I'll spend some years with a certain mantra. And it's kind of like different uh, different flavors. And like some years I'll be really, it's like all about the mother and Jay Jokatambe. And other times it's Ram it just really depends what's happening in my life. And now that I kind of know more what the energy is of different mantras, like that's how I use them. It's like opening your medicine cabinet and pulling out what you need. That's cool. And then that's, so if I maybe sing for an hour a day, you know, I'll pick like the three mantras that feel like they're the most supportive to me that day. That's amazing. My God. Um, so let's talk about a handful of them. Yeah. So um, there's there's so many juicy ones in the book. It was really hard to pick. But like, we'll start with like the basic one that I think almost anyone knows, which is the, of course, the Om. The and Om. I love that it's, Classic. Old, it's older than Classic. the woolly mammoth. <laughs> that's crazy. Yeah, yeah. That's where it's dated, older than the, the woolly, woolly mammoth. mammoth. That's very specific. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, that that's really cool. One of the things that really struck me when you were writing about Om is this idea, I, I'm going to mispronounce it, Turiya? Turiya? You're not far. Yeah, okay. Turiya. Yeah. Okay. But do you want to talk about that? Because I was like really struck by that. Yeah. So um, the spelling of the mantra Om, there are, there's sort of the, the common spelling, which is O-M, but the traditional spelling is A-U-M. And uh, those are said to represent these three different aspects of uh creation, sustenance, and destruction. But then it's said that there's this fourth element, and that is the silence that follows the Om. It's like the vibration. And that it's like that's tapping into like the whole cosmos, the potential of everything. So 
that's what's really lovely about like kind of when you dive into a mantra, like there's a whole world. And um, for in the book, there's 13 mantras and each one has um, the mythology. Each one has application. There's uh, pronunciation. So you can really kind of like get in there on these subtler levels if that's something that you feel drawn to. It's very cool. And then you talk about first coming to New York and feeling a little lost and walking around doing the <laughs> Soham. Soham, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, <laughs> this is this mantra, Soham, that um, is often linked with the inhale and exhale. And my teacher at the time, Dharma Mitra, he just said like, yeah, you just, just walk around. And at that time, it was like my first few years living here and as we all know in New York, like this is such a busy city, but very isolating, you yeah. know, especially when you first move here and you haven't found your herd yet. Totally. It'd be very lonely. Yeah. And so I would just walk around the East Village doing this mantra that is mm-hmm. all about really, it's like breathing in the, the infinite and that kind of, it's like softening the boundary between us and them. It's a, has a really beautiful quality and, yeah, I did that for a few years. It's like my, uh, just my my nurturing until I found my people. I find that very inspiring. I mean, you can also do if you're on a business trip and don't know anyone, like just walk around. <laughs> it's like a, it's yeah. a beautiful tool. Totally. And then earlier when you were with your band, you guys did the Maha Mantra. Yeah, we did Maha Mantra, yeah. And I was just, I was, and you, one of the things you're in the book is, this, is a story about how there's a place in India where someone has been doing it continuously for how long? In kind of since space. like since World War Two, I think it was it's kind of right around then. Going without stop, and people yeah. come here and they're dying sometimes to contribute. Will you talk about that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This <laughs> is this... let me mess up the story. Tell the story, Lily. <laughs> <laughs> this is this amazing um, space in Rishikesh in this ashram there, and it's a room that's dedicated just to the recitation of this one mantra. And um, maha means great. It's like, it's considered, of course, everybody kind of says this, like, well, this one's the best mantra. But this particular maha mantra, it's very potent. And uh, you walk into this room and it's like, it's like descending into another planet altogether. Mm. It's like you can qualitatively feel the difference as you cross over the threshold. And it's like full of like saints all over. And it's kind of this like green blue lighting. And and they've been continuously singing Maha Mantra in that room 24 hours a day since it first opened. And it just gives me chills. Think about it. Totally. And when you, and people actually go there to spend maybe the last month of their life doing service before they die, singing this mantra. So it's not like, it's not Celine Dion at all. Yeah. And and uh, the time that I spent there was like this, you know, tiny little Indian man who was like, just sort of looked like a heap of clothes because he was just so little and withered up and just like, that's what it was. Wow. But like, he was doing there. The he mantra. was doing it. Yeah, and this was how he chose to spend his last time before dying. Wow. So I love that because whenever I sing that mantra, 
I feel like I'm just tapping into this flow that already exists. It's like the river of the mantra is happening. Right now, literally, as we're sitting here. As we sit here. So amazing. And that we can join into that flow and this long lineage of like thousands and thousands of years of people who, you know, deeply believe in this practice and, and understand kind of what it can do on a personal level, but also like in the larger picture of the energy we, we really manifest in our lives. I love that. And then the, the one that I am not going to try to pronounce, but you know, knew which one instantly before I was talking about it, <laughs> which is the one that's also all about like, well, okay, we may end up in that little room in our final hour if we're lucky yeah. right, doing that. Yeah. Um, but there's one that's all about cherishing the time we do have here. Yeah. Om Namah Shivaya. Yes. I was, thanks. I wasn't going to try, <laughs> but I want to learn that. But yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. Om, Na- Om Namah Shiva. Shivaya. Shivaya. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. And this one, and you'll see some of the mantras are really linked to a certain deity. So this one is linked to Shiva who is known as like the destroyer um, and is this fierce, fierce, fierce um, Hindu God who um, kind of like represents that part of the cycle that's about letting go and making space for the creation of what's going to come through. And uh, it's so interesting because, you know, I always loved that mantra a lot. And I never really understood why. But um, as I kind of like stayed with it through the years, it just started to open up some space in me to appreciate that aspect of the cycle. Mm. The part where, you know, we can just get comfortable letting go of things. And we don't have to be so afraid what's on the other side of all the things we lose. That's just like the natural cycle of, being a human totally yeah Yeah, the impermanence the impermanence yeah so that's like a beautiful doorway to like kind of interact differently with that part of life just like oh i'm letting go of like i didn't get the car i wanted when i or i'm letting go of a relationship or you know it can be anything from small to huge and that you could kind of do that mantra as a way to like oh yeah let's let's find, let's see what this is. Like, how do we, how do we do this in a way that maybe is more open and more connected and less afraid? Right. Like you enjoy the release rather than like fight it. Yeah. And how poignant that release when you can, you know, turn and look at it and really be with it. Just like the deep appreciation that comes for what we do have and understanding like the transient nature of, all these things around us, ourselves included. Totally and like honoring it. I love that. So before we take questions, let's just talk really briefly. Let's go practical again. Oh yeah. About how to incorporate this in our day-to-day lives. Yeah. Yeah. So the book has like some formal practices and then there's like a whole section about fun ways to like bring mantra in. And uh, as I was writing the book, I, I didn't realize how how much of this I'd done. I just kind of like, you know, I'm into mantras. So like, of course I'm going to say a mantra when I'm cooking, when I'm brushing my teeth, when I'm, and there's this amazing list. So it's really fun and you can use, you can use it in all different ways. And since there are different mantras that kind of generate different energy, 
Like there are some that are really more about clarifying and opening. Others are more strength and stability. You can kind of pair them with different activities. So cool. So like, you know, for years I did this mantra for purification every time I would clean because that was quite literally what that mantra was about was like cleaning out and purifying stuff that's unnecessary. So of course, cleaning my apartment, brushing my teeth like that. I love that. And um, let's talk about, cause it just feels so important. You talk so much about like, don't beat yourself up about it. Right. Don't, um, because there's like the suffering we go through in life. And then there's me and my friends used to, do you guys know in advertising, they call it added value. Like when like a magazine is going to take, there's an ad and then they get a concert that goes along with it, with their label or whatever. And so we started calling it added value suffering where we were upset about something, but then on top of it, we would start beating ourselves up and it was yeah. like, oh, no added value suffering. And so, and I think you talk a lot about that, about like to go into it with, from a place of lo- like loving yourself and kindness. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, how, like some tips on that? Cause I think yeah. it's something that can be really tough. Yeah. And I think especially here in New York, like it's, it's, this is like a type A environment Yes, <laughs> where that's just kind of the baseline for just surviving here in the city and, you know, getting on the subway. It's like, you got to like get on. <laughs> yeah. You can't just like be, you know? Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, but I would say that one of the, the big um, tools that comes with doing this practice is learning compassion and learning how to be gentle with yourself and, and being with what is. So, um, you can slowly start to soften in those places where we give ourselves a hard time. Even the idea of like how well we think sh- we should be able to do the practice when we first sit down. Right. But, you know, I kind of think of it like it's this fun experiment to just sit down and, you know, give ourselves fully to something and just see what happens and see, you know, in that experiment, we have room to play around with ourselves in a way that we don't otherwise. Like we can play with, okay, well, what happens if I just don't believe everything my mind says? Mm. Or what happens if I'm just like super relaxed and approach it that way? Or maybe I'm going to just try to be more organized and more structured. Like all these things that in regular life, there's no room for. We're just doing, doing, doing. You got to get it done. But here we can look at how we're doing it. And that is such a game changer. And I think, you know, the feedback I hear from people who, you know, when they first encounter this is that's one of the biggest things that changes. And it's not that the circumstances of their life is suddenly different. It's not that, oh, we don't encounter hard things now, but we can be gentle with ourselves when we encounter them. And we can cultivate that skill in formal practice. And like, that's remarkable. Totally. I mean, yeah, you write in your book by taking a few minutes to reconnect with, with deeper yourself. I love this concept of deeper ourself. Um, you can approach the situation in a balanced state of relaxed alertness instead of coming from a place of fear. So beautiful. Yeah. And wouldn't, I mean... To be able to move through our day with less fear, that's huge. So I think that's worth a shot. Amen. This seems like a good place to wrap it. Yeah. All right. So I think now we're going to turn it over for questions from you guys from Lily. We're going to take a few questions. (laughs) Yay. Thank you for your beautiful self and your beautiful voice. 
I'm always grateful when I can sit with you. Um, so my question about chanting is, I've, I've um, started doing some Tibetan chanting, having been on some retreat and I have a Tibetan chant book. Um, how is it different? You know, a lot of the chanting you're describing is Hindu chanting, right? So how, but I, I also heard you say earlier, look, there's ch different chanting in all these different tra traditions. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for your question. Um, in, it's totally the same. It's just about applying that same framework. So whatever the mantra is that you run through it, and there's some from different traditions. So whether it's Tibetan or Hindu or Native American, they're all different types. And um, with any of those, you can do that same formal practice of using that as the, the basis to sort of anchor your attention into. And when you get distracted, you come back to it. So uh, why you would choose a different mantra is kind of the fun part, because that's really just what you're drawn to. Or, you know, if, if there's a certain thing you're looking to cultivate, repeating that mantra is a way to do that. So, and for years when I was first doing this, I, I made a point to not learn the meaning of any of them, uh, in part because I just didn't want to activate my thinking mind. And I just went very intuitively like, oh yeah, I like that one. And I would do that one and, and that was enough for me, like even without knowing what it meant. So, um, and that's not the way everybody likes to interact with this. Like some people really want to know what it means and what it's saying. Um, but there's lots of ways to do it. And uh, so, yeah, if you like that one, go for it. Yeah, over here. Um, you're speaking a lot about sort of uh, using mantra in a personal sense to control the mind, focus the mind, and create sort of an inner peace or positivity. And then I think just I'm reflecting a little bit about on the, the power of the collective chanting or the, the collective collective uh, mantra practice. Did you find anything in your studies about, you know, sort of compassion work or um, positivity that can bring people together through the community chanting? All of the studies I found were on an individual basis, um, but my hope is that that's kind of the next frontier of where the, the science is going to be investigating things because uh, it's such a different thing when you're on your own versus when you're with 10 people or a thousand people. And uh, I think we've all probably been in one of those stadium concerts where the hit song comes on and the whole stadium sings that song. And there's nothing quite like it on that level. Um, so I think it, it does uh, open into the possibility of you know, what's possible when we, on that individual basis, I wouldn't say control the mind, but I'd say train the mind. When we train ourselves to pay attention differently and to have more of that uh, 
concentration to be less fragmented. And you've got many people doing that at once. It's pretty amazing to think about what is possible there. So let's do it. Let's find out. Please <laughs> <laughs> stand. Yeah. Awesome. So um, I just want to thank you again for being here and you guys know what the moth is, right? It's like my favorite thing, the storytelling. And, and uh, the moth has so many great events here in New York, uh, which I tend to always go to, <laughs> take Yay. all my friends. Um, and so I just want to thank you again for... Thank you. It was my great honor. Yeah. I always love talking to you. Um, so Krishnadas is going to come and sing a little bit to close our evening. And I just uh, wanted to thank Tiana and the whole team here at, at ABC for uh, this felt like the perfect place to bring this book into the world. And um, these amazing musicians who are here tonight, you guys want to come up? Terrence on drum, Tom on cartels. Janaki sang responsible for before and uh, Noah on cello. Yeah. 
folks thanks for listening to learn more about sharon and her ongoing teaching schedule as well as online courses and a free guided meditation check out her website at sharonsalzberg.com